Welcome back to Sound Thoughts on Art, an audio series from the National Gallery of Art. I'm Celeste Headley. When we engage with art, it kickstarts our five senses. We hear music or feel the beat of a drum in our chests. We see the vivid colors of a photo. We take in the three dimensions of a sculpture. We savor the taste of fine food. Sometimes you can smell the carved wood or the smeared oil paint. But when there's crossover, when a piece of art activates multiple senses and they begin to interact and intertwine, that's when things really get interesting. When we listen to melody, what images flash through our minds? When we study the brushwork in a painting, what do we hear? This podcast lives in that crossover, in the space at the center of our five senses Venn diagram. In each episode, you'll learn about a work at the National Gallery and you'll hear a musician respond to that work through sound, creating a dialogue between the visual art and music. Sound Thoughts on Art delves into our personal relationship with art and the unique response we have to beautifully made things. When first looking at this episode's piece of visual art, it's possible you'd assume it was exactly what it looks like, the metal part of a shovel, worn away with old age and use. You might walk by it on the sidewalk and not even pick it up. But don't be fooled here. This untitled work by Hawkins Bolden was very much made by design. Two holes in the shovel's head almost evoke eyes, showing us a little slice of the world framed in rust. Like so many folk artists of the American South, Bolden had to work with what he had That resourcefulness is a focus for a forthcoming exhibition at the National Gallery of Art titled Called to Create Black Artists of the American South. That exhibition will open September 18th of this year. But in the meantime, there's lots of stories and histories to unpack right here on this show. So for this episode's musician, Delfeo Marsalis, the shovel calls to mind more than a face or even a gardening implement. It conjures up a bygone way of life. Which brings me straight back to this piece of art that you've chosen because I thought what a fit how fitting the music is. There's this this beat to it, this rhythm that I could totally imagine being the rhythm of, of digging. Um kind of that sh- a little bit of that tum, 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 gets you in the idea of working, but also there's this this idea of, in the music at least, I hear the sort of wryness. Like, this isn't a brand new shovel, this is a rusty shovel. <laughs> and there's a little bit of a wry tone to the music itself. Can you tell me about, like, when you look at this shovel, what, A, do you see a face, and, and what's the expression on that face? Well... One of the most important individuals for me growing up as a child was my Uncle Alphonse, my great-uncle Alphonse. I knew of him when he was 86 years old, and he died at 96, but he was a strong, strong man. Alphonse was actually a white man. He might have had a drop of black in him. (laughs) It was just a funny kind of a situation, but, you know, he married Marguerite, and she was a dark-skinned woman, and... You know, I wasn't thinking of it in those terms, but looking back at it, it's like there's a picture of Alphonse when he was really young and he easily could have passed and the trajectory of his life would have been much different. But he chose not to. 
And that was, uh, so I, I think about him very often. And I think about the way that he lived very modest. You know, they were just, he and uh, Aunt Marguerite were very modest people, but they had serious integrity. And it just, you know, they, they're the type of people that you want to be around. They were not about the flashy things, never had fancy cars. or, And I think we miss that. We need more of that, that generation. And he was a proud man, and, and he worked long. He worked for a long time, and he didn't mind working. I think what we find from some of the American folk tales or folklore is that these folks don't want to work. These folks are just lazy and shiftless. You see, that's what the, the rub is, that in order to justify the nonsense, I guess we'd have to say we had to, to create a certain narrative that fit. Well, yeah, they have to be enslaved because they don't want to work. They won't do anything. They just this and that. And, uh, you know, again, it's, it's pretty absurd. But that type of narrative is still running today. For more on Hawkins Bolden and the folk art of the South, we're joined by Lisa Collins, now a professor at Vassar College. She was a visiting senior fellow at the National Gallery's Center for Advanced Study in the Visual Arts last year. Can you tell me first a little bit about this piece? Sure. So it's a rusted shovel head and it looks like a face. So the rusted shovel head, it's steel, reddish brown. It's got three punctured holes in it. The top two look like vacant, haunting eyes. And then there's a punctured hole at the bottom that the artist put a piece of rubber garden hose through it. So it looks like an open mouth with a tongue hanging out. Um, and then possibly that curve from the shovel at the top might, to me, it suggests a nose. So it looks like a face. And I think that the work might have originally been a scarecrow and possibly originally attached to a piece of wood or attached to the fence of Hawkins Bolden's um, yard because he liked to make scarecrows to protect his property and his vegetable garden. And there, I mean, there's a lot of implications with scarecrows, right? I mean, they have a lot of different kinds of symbolism. What does the scarecrow, artistically, what, what does the scarecrow mean to you? Well, it's kind of interesting here because as the story about his life is told, that in 1965, he was just complaining to his niece about the crows coming to eat his tomatoes. And she suggested to him, make a scarecrow. And it seems like ever after, he would um, bring back discarded objects that he came across in his everyday life as a, somebody whose job it was to clean vacant lots and alleyways and the streets of urban um, Memphis, Tennessee. 
and he'd bring back these objects and create scarecrows. But as the years went on, he created these, it seems like in the late 60s and the 1970s and the 1980s, and he kept making them and he kept kind of re um, adjusting them and adding more and taking some out. And um, it got to the point where it looked like there was more scarecrows than crops. <laughs> so it seems like he was, of course, trying to protect his vegetable garden, but also possibly using the scarecrow as a as a larger protective force for him, kind of as a little fortress. It seems like um, his family owned a couple um, shotgun houses in downtown Memphis that they held on to at a time when that neighborhood was being transformed. And in fact, all of the property around him became commercial. So it's true. It's probably that there's still crows coming, but it might be just this idea of, of protection and, and, um, of anything that feels perhaps uncertain to him in his enclosed backyard that's being kind of overtaken by commercial buildings with concrete and asphalt. He worked in the field of art that's often referred to as found art. What does that mean? I mean, uh, uh, the average person thinks found art is just someone making art out of things they find. Is, is, it, that thin, is it that simple? Well, it is that simple, right? It, so it's finding discarded things, cast off things, abandoned materials. But what makes them art is that he transforms them. He repurposes them. He kind of offers them anew. Um, so it's definitely a tradition that assemblage artists use this. Um, but where you're taking pieces, and in his case, really taking, you know, junk, the stuff that's been discarded in lots, but repurposing it and making things anew. So it is that transformation of um, cast off objects that is what he's so ingenious about him. Apparently, um, he also liked to make radios so it seems like he was just a great and resourceful and ingenious creator of, of things, things that, that make noise and help us hear, as well as things that um, scare away anything menacing in his backyard. Do you think folk artists don't often get the same um, respect and serious scholarship that other artists do? I think that was the case until pretty recently. But now I think there's a whole incredible literature, maybe not just in art history, but also in American studies, also in African American studies, also in anthropology, sociology, um, where people are interested in creative expression, regardless of the training of the artist. And I assume you think that's a positive change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're all creators. I think the more that we think about and look closely at what people create, the better we're all served.
about how you, it, it, there's all, if all this is there in this artwork for you, how does that translate into music? How does that become a sound in your head? Well, when you know older people and their struggle, that shovel to me captures all these different elements. So people are working, and of course we had the, the church songs that they would sing that helped them and their strong belief. So when I see that, that shovel, it reminds me of being in church in the long sermons by the preacher and the folks hollering out, hey, yes, he did. Amen. Preach, brother. And the choir singing, uplifting you and clapping. And the person who's not singing in tune and they singing too loud into the microphone, but their message has so much emotional passion and resolve that they get a standing ovation from the congregation. I see all of that in that shovel. I see the fact that a man will wake up every day and take his job seriously and work and work and work. So I see all of that. When I see that shovel, it takes me back to a great time, a time when I was innocent and didn't actually understand, a time when I appreciated the people that I was around. And thankfully, my mother, she was trying to get a break from having five kids at that point. She allowed me to spend some time with these older people. And it would take years before I really understood the magnitude of who they actually were as people. Here is Old Rusty Shovel by Dalfeo Marsalis in full.
Hawkins Bolden is is a self-taught artist. Um, and his story is very unusual in many ways and with a lot of tragedy as well as just incredible uh, uh, expressive and creative gifts. Um, but he was born a twin in 1914, and he and his twin brother, Monroe, both loved baseball. And one day they were playing baseball and um, Monroe was batting and Hawkins was catching and a ball came that um, Monroe swung at that I guess Hawkins didn't at all think his brother was going to swing at it. So he stood up to catch it and the bat hit him on the head. And ever after that, he suffered from seizures. And then at the age of um, seven or eight, went entirely blind. So he was an artist who made things largely using his sense of, of touch. And so, um, you know, there's a great quote of him saying, you know, I feel the sun, I feel the heat. And um, some of his art is um, very focused on sound, actually. So he starts working around his community, picking up trash and cleaning out lots. And then he'd bring home some of this discarded um, cast off, some of this material to his house. He had a little uh, workspace, actually, um, underneath his shotgun house, and he's had an enclosed garden. But then he just went about this process of creating objects from discarded material. And um, the objects are often faces, like this shovel, and often it's metal that is the material for the face. And lots of the material he used actually, like, makes a lot of noise. Mm. What do you mean noise? So some of the object, like metal, like clanging things, like some of the, his favorite materials are metal buckets and basins and metal bedpans, and he loved rusted chains and wire and wheels and hubcaps and license plates, TV parts, pots, pans, and lids. So it's a lot of stuff that makes a lot of noise. Um, and then like in the, object here, he used pieces of um, rubber in this case. In some cases, he would use the soles, the rubber soles of old shoes, or pieces of blankets, or pieces of carpet. So materials that muffle or soften the sound um, are part of the equation too. So in the garden hose, we've got this big rusted metal shovel head that we can almost hear, you know, digging up dirt or maybe scraping against the ground or maybe finding a rock or a root or something in the ground. But then paired with these other objects, often used as tongues, but that mute sound or muffle sound or soften it. So it's kind of 
although we often talk about visual art, actually Hawkins Bolden's work is very multi-sensory. It definitely involves touch and it involves um, visuals and it involves um, sound. He, where is his place uh, in sort of the, the continuum of African-American art? What, what place does he occupy? So he's in an incredible pool of African-American vernacular or self-taught or self-trained or community-centered artists working with found objects. So people like Bessie Harvey or Lonnie Holly or Charlie Lucas. Um, He's also part of a group of um, African-American creators who use their yards as the site for their art making and their art showing. Um, So yard art, um, garden art, this is also um, a tradition that he's part of too. So is, I mean, we were talking about the shotgun houses as being intimate homes with you know maybe one or two rooms Um, so they're houses that kind of push you propel you out into the yard out into the street Um, and so that becomes a space for you to continue with your artistic expression and as I said Hawkins bolded and by the end of it there's many more what he called scarecrows and other people might call figurative sculptures. Um, But there's many more objects in his yard of his creation than the the vegetable plants and the um, tomato plants that he was growing back there. This, this art piece is, is part of a larger exhibition, and one of the big themes of the exhibition is the idea of call and response, um, a, 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 an idea that has been around for generation after generation, in, in black music especially. Um, and I, I wonder if you ended up using any kind of call, jazz is so much about responding to what someone else has just played, right? Like, did you find yourself... Um, using that idea of call and response in your pieces? Not particularly call and response because of the instrumentation. It's kind of just call and response from the standpoint of, no, it's not actually call and response. But I would say when I wrote it, you know, I was thinking, you know, so do, 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 ding, ding, ding. Originally, that was supposed to be the bass part. Do, 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 ding, ding, ding. Do, 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 ding, ding, ding. It's a blues. Yeah, Yeah, it's a blues. So we got to the studio, and I had the bass player play it. I didn't have any melody. And I was like, man, I'm trying to come up with a melody. But the bass note starts on the five of the chord. So it's in F. It starts Mm -hmm. on a C. So we played a little bit, and I said, no, no, man, that's not it. So I said, I just told him, hey, play a pedal. 
play pedal F and C. So he played it pedal, and then I played his part. And it's that kind of song that could be, you know, working in the fields all day. You know, you can just hear that singing in that chant. So then once he put the bass part down, I said, okay, now we're going to come together. So it's almost like when folks work together and then the, the drummer's there and he's just, you know, his response is, it's like you said, it sounds like that digging. He's hitting that hi-hat. Yeah. So we got three different things going on, you know, blown, blown, working in the field all day. Cat. all day. Cat. You know, it's just, it was just one of those things yeah. that I said, and I woke up and I heard it and I was like, this is the old rusty shovel. And uh, another day I woke up and I heard the glory shovel. In fact, I'm going to send you the original one that I wrote because that one has more elements. That one is more like today's generation because we've been trying to escape that idea of working in manual labor for so long. So that's actually my favorite song is the one that I didn't send. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really... It, you know, I'm sure that happens sometimes. Well, it's really upbeat, though. You know, it's really just like, you know... Wait, do I even have it here? Let me see if I even have it. All right, here we go. I think this is it. Can you hear it? Yeah. <laughs> but watch what happens to it. Oh. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> I'm going to send you that cuz you might want to use that. You know, it's like Yeah, that's uh, that's a, that's on bangs. I mean, the switch between the swing and the hard driving blues, that's awesome. And that's what I was like to me, it's like everything that would happen, all of these different emotions. Oh man, that's yeah. great. So I'm gonna I'm gonna send you that one. But I'm like, when I think of that. Yeah, due respect to your wife, but that's a banger, man. <laughs> well, she, you know, but there again, it all it all comes down to. How do we tell our story? How do we tell our story? You know, there's a, a great, uh, there's something on PBS now with uh, Henry, Henry Louis Gates, and it's great. It covers a long period of time and a lot of the struggles. And it's difficult to show that what has actually occurred in history and celebrate it. But I'm like, that's what we have to do. Yeah. We have to celebrate some of the music that I write now. You know, I say, we're going to dedicate this to that first ship that left Africa and landed on American shores. Well, now immediately you think, uh-oh, it's going to be something in a minor key. Yeah. And it's, boy, no, not at all. Because <clears throat> I'm celebrating the greatness of these people. That they came here and they fought so that I could be here today. Without their tenacity and without their strength and their cunning and their intellect. I mean, they were in the midst of the worst possible oppression 
and they somehow figured out how to make it work and they just grabbed that hatred with love and said nah nah baby you ain't getting the best of me and that's what i want the music to represent Thank you so much yet again to Delfeo Marsalis for joining us. You can learn more about him, Lisa Collins, and the upcoming exhibition called to create Black Artists of the American South at the National Gallery of Arts website, nga.gov. Sound Thoughts on Art is a production of the National Gallery of Arts Music Department. The show was created by Danielle Hahn, the National Gallery of Arts Head of Music Programs, and it was mixed and produced by Maura Curry. To support the show, share Sound Thoughts on Art and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm Celeste Headley. Until we meet again, be well. <laughs> <laughs>